Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon. You're live on Blog Talk Radio. Chuck Morse, host of Chuck Morse Speaks, Monday through Friday, noon to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, right here in Boston, Massachusetts. You're welcome to join the program, 347-327-9849. That number again is 347-327-9849. And we're waiting for Gar Smith to join us. Gar is the author of Nuclear Roulette. Uh, the um, book is available on Amazon, The Truth About the Most Dangerous Energy Source on Earth, that being nuclear power, nuclear fusion. Um, this is a very troubling book. Uh, it is very, very upsetting. I must say, uh, well-written, well-documented. Uh, it delves into the realities of nuclear power and what that can mean to our environment, what it can mean to our air, what it can mean to our water supplies worldwide, what it can mean in the long run to human life. And um, Gar specifically focuses on the uh, Fukushima disaster about a couple of years back in Japan and what that really was about, how devastating that actually was, which is something that has been downplayed by the Japanese government, by the world uh, in, general, in general, by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, how those design, the design of that nuclear plant is the same as the design of nuclear plants in the United States, including right here in Plymouth, Massachusetts, um, how the nuclear industry has not determined how to get rid of nuclear waste, which could be even more dangerous and more toxic than the core of a nuclear plant, and that how in the case of Fukushima and other plants, these nuclear wastes are basically stored in these gigantic um, cylindrical uh, containers right at the site of the plant where it's just a, it's, it's a terrible hazard. It's a, you know, it's a, I'm not a scientist, but uh, you know, when I read this stuff, I find it very upsetting. And I, I, you know, I, I think that when it comes to nuclear matters, I tend to be sort of on the, on the green side anyway, or when it comes to environmental matters, and uh, maybe people might say that that means I agree with the left, I suppose, but not really, because nuclear power is promoted by both left and right, and it's also opposed by both left and right. It doesn't seem to transcend. It seems to transcend, um, you know, the, those philosophies. It seems it, it, it has more to do with uh, um, sort of a, a, a what I think very well may be, and, and we can discuss this further with Gar. Uh, I hope he joins us shortly. If not, I'm going to reschedule him because I really want to talk to him about this. Um, it, it has more to do with uh, people's vision of advancement and, and societal pro progress and the, the energy that's needed to affect that. And um, that uh, there's this insistence that the nuclear way to go is the way to go in terms of uh, you know cheap energy. Um, Gar mentions, for example, that uh, this trend began – in the 1950s with the Atoms for Peace movement that was launched by President Eisenhower and that we became conditioned to the idea that the nuclear development was not just something that was a weapon program, but that could be used for peaceful purposes. Guy, thanks for joining me this afternoon. Thank you for the invitation, Jack. 
Your book is Nuclear Roulette, The Truth About the Most Dangerous Energy Source on Earth. I must tell you, this is a very upsetting book. And, um, I, you know, while I'm conservative, and I, I, I think this is one of those issues that transcends left and right because you've got people both on the left and the right who are pro-nuclear and people both on the left and the right who are anti-nuclear. The question, the, the issues that you bring up are the actual possible effects of nuclear power and nuclear fallout on human life and on this planet and you bring up some very practical matters, particularly the fact that our nuclear industry, which is proliferating nuclear plants around the world as we speak, they don't know what to do with the waste material. They don't know what to do with a nuclear plant when it reaches the age of, um, of, of when it's no longer in use. And also they don't really know how to respond honestly to some major nuclear disasters that have occurred, the three of which we know about, of course, are Chernobyl, Three Mile Island, and Fukushima. Yeah, and there are a number of accidents that have happened around the world in the last 50 years with nuclear power plants that have been, well, not as catastrophic as the three that we're familiar with. They've been uh, uh, incredibly damaging. There have been fires and radiation releases and mass evacuations and major contaminations of landscape. What, uh, you know, this is, uh, I'm finding this book to be so upsetting, but yet it's well written and I am reading it carefully. Um, do we have data on what nuclear, how, what what effects the nuclear stuff has on the human being? Yeah, um, we um, are. Uh, we've always been assured that uh, the peaceful atom is also a, a clean agent of energy, but there have been a number of stories that just can uh, not just stories. I'm sorry, these are actual uh, uh, health studies that have been compiled over the years, and increasingly the um, uh, judgment is that as the National Academy of Sciences has admitted, there is no risk-free risk dose of radiation. There is no safe, safe level of exposure. And this uh, something else that's not widely recognized is that uh, nuclear power plants uh, routinely release radioactive uh, material in the course of routine operations. And this uh, can be tracked in census figures, which uh, um, clearly indicate that there are greater incidences of leukemia and childhood, uh, childhood leukemia and thyroid in areas surrounding nuclear plants. Um, uh, one specific, um, in the five years after the Three Mile Island incident, uh, cancer rates soared 64% with uh, within a 10-mile radius of, of that uh, damaged reactor. And, so then the uh, nuclear material is just its something that does not degrade into the environment all that quickly, and there's a lot of evidence. I, I don't think there was evidence in the early days in the 1950s that people didn't realize how dangerous the nuclear atom was, but at this point there's a great deal of evidence that this material, which stays in the environment for hundreds of probably thousands of years, it doesn't biodegrade, that it is very damaging on not just the human body, but also on animal and plant life on the planet itself when it when it's exposed to this radiation. Yeah, we've seen mutations of animals and plants in Chernobyl downwind of the uh, explosion and fire there, and it's also starting to be recognized in Fukushima where uh, uh, birds and uh, and insects are showing mutation changes. Um, something to bear in mind, there are a lot of uh, terms that are used in referring to radiation exposure 
most of us are not familiar with REMS or Becquerel's or Micro Sieverts or Curies, but the one uh, word that we're all familiar with is half-life. And it's very interesting if you think about this, why do we know about half-life? The industry has really pushed this concept because it's a way of minimizing the danger of radiation exposure. If you really want to know how dangerous an isotope is, take the half-life and multiply it by 10. Uh, let's take an example. When the fallout from the three meltdowns in Fukushima washed over the United States from March 15th to the 19th, we had washouts in the rain of radioactive iodine-131 and also cesium-137. But the government would only talk about the iodine-131 and reassure us not to worry. It's got a half-life of only six days. But imagine if you subscribed to a pumpkin delivery company and they brought you a pumpkin and put it on your doorstep every day for six days. You'd have six pumpkins at the end of the week. Right. Uh, that radiation didn't stop after one day. It continued to mount. The cesium, which they did not talk about, the half-life of that product is 30 years. Oh, boy. And this, this of course, washed ashore in California after Fukushima in the form of, uh, you know, uh, condensation in the atmosphere, and uh, plus, plus there was a major dump of nuclear, uh, you know, radiation in the ocean around the Fukushima plant, and yeah, that actually it was contaminated the uh, Pacific Ocean. It was the atmospheric uh, washout that hit the West Coast and went all the way to Boston. It was registered in Boston and onto to Stockholm, I understand. Uh, and some of the plant, in other words. Hmm? It covered virtually the entire planet, and you know, all, um, of, all of this material—it's—it's it's so long lived that eventually it's—it's it's going to to reach everywhere. Uh, I do need to point out though that the uh, radiation spill into the ocean, while dramatic and unprecedented, um, it's um, still on its way to the United States. There was a report by the Massachusetts Institute of Technology uh, about two weeks ago, and they estimated that the the major uh, impacts from that. Uh, oceanic flow are going to hit the west coast within five years and that within another five years the radiation off the west coast will quite likely be ten times as concentrated as it will be uh, in the shores in, in the waters offshore Fukushima and that basically means the end of the California fishing industry and what's going on in Japan I mean do they have fishing industry at this point do they have What's the atmosphere like over there? They have uh, they have a polluted ocean. They have uh, an area the size of Rhode Island that's probably going to be a no man's land. Uh, they are uh, dealing with uh, a population that has been exposed to uh, strontium, iodine, cesium. Thirty five percent of the children uh, are now in the Fukushima area who have been exposed now show thyroid cysts. They have oh. uh, lumps in their thyroids. Uh, and this is something that's not going to go away anytime soon. And I'm particularly shocked and saddened that the Japanese would be involved in uh, developing these these nuclear facilities after what happened in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I mean, you'd think that there might be some sensitivity about nuclear uh, materials even anywhere near that country. Well, that was another surprising thing I discovered in the course of researching the book is that is the role that the United States had in. Uh, promoting nuclear energy in Japan. And one of the ways that they did this was through 
CIA, a CIA contact who was uh, uh, previously most well-known as a, a war criminal in Japan, and he was um, given financing by the CIA to use his uh, communications organization to promote nuclear energy and unfortunately he became a bit of a rogue because he had dreams of uh, going beyond peaceful atoms and uh, uh, building a nuclear weapons capability for Japan and reassuring uh, reasserting itself as an international military player. And who was this? Do you know the name of this person? Uh, unfortunately it's uh, it's a name that uh, I would have to look up uh, uh, the Japanese names don't always stick in my head. I understand. So it's a Japanese national. Now this. But he uh, became he became the first head of the uh, of Japan's uh, uh, Atomic Energy Commission. Right now, now this is so. This is a situation where you've got severe contamination in Japan, much more so than we we previously knew. And your book documents this very well. It it it, it focuses on well well produced international reports. You've got, uh, of course, the uh, the Chernobyl disaster, which a very large swath of land is uninhabitable in that country, probably will be for the next who knows how many centuries. I mean, this is, a, you know, a ma and, and that spread nuclear fallout all over Europe and all over Central Asia at the time. This is material that is not going to be going away anytime soon. It's going to be around, as you say, there's a shelf life of 30 years, and in that time, People and animals and plants and the entire planet is going to be exposed to this kind of radiation, which is very, very damaging. Um, you know, it's a, the, the subject matter is really troubling to me. I mean, it, 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 it harkens to questions of the misuse of science or the development of, of a destructive science that uh, is quite real but yet is quite destructive to the degree that we could wipe out life on this planet. Um, there's, a, you know, just as a quick sidebar here, Gar, there is a very tiny nuclear reactor near where I happen to live here in Boston. Mm -hmm. uh, it's actually within a few blocks of where my daughter goes to high school. It is in the uh, the medical center in Longwood in Boston. Um, it's very, very small, but it's big enough just to to power, I guess, all of the medical establishments over there, the Brigham and Women's Hospital and all these other hospitals, and that there's another one over at MIT. Those are the two that are operating here in Boston. Uh, they're very, very tiny. I mean, are they endangering people? I mean, are they releasing? Do, I mean, do we know if they're releasing radiation into the atmosphere? Well, the um, uh, Associated Press recently reported a study that was done on uh, the commercial reactors, and they determined that uh, radioactive tritium has been uh, released at uh, levels exceeding the federal uh, drinking water standards in three-quarters of uh, the U.S. commercial reactors. Mm -hmm. And uh, anybody who's uh, followed the nuclear reactor business knows that uh, these plants all routinely release uh, radioisotopes radio both in the air and the, the water effluent. And I uh, could only imagine that uh, the non-commercial research reactors uh, uh, are uh, no less susceptible to these leaking problems than the commercial reactors. Well, it sounds to me like they're actually legally allowed under the Nuclear Regulatory Commission rules to release a certain amount of radioactivity into the atmosphere and the water, aren't they? Yeah, the regulators are very helpful when it comes to um, assuring that the nuclear industry is allowed to um, 
proceed without an undue uh, uh, caution. They allow permissible amounts of radiation to be released into the air and water. And it's permissible because it can't be controlled. And one thing, thing that we saw in um, both uh, Japan following Fukushima and in the United States is that when there uh, was this detectable release of radiation in the Tokyo schoolyards, the government's response was to simply raise the definition of what was safe by 20 times, and that's been done in the United oh States. Oh, my God. Too. I mean, it shouldn't be at all. I mean, this is stuff that is not good for people. Uh, the book is Nuclear Roulette, The Truth About the Most Dangerous Energy Source on Earth. Uh, Gar Smith is my guest. Gar, we right, right here in Plymouth, Massachusetts, we have a nuclear plant that was built very similar in design to the Fukushima plant, that being the Pilgrim plant in Plymouth. And right after the Fukushima plant, the governor of our state asked for a meeting with the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, and they, they had a press conference, and they went on television, and Basically, what the nuclear regulatory people told the governor was that there's nothing he can do, that this is fine, and that they go back, go back to the state house and mind your business. And of course, the governor did that. He just, you know, packed up, and, you know, tail between the legs, and he left. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's uh, and yet there it is, right on the coast in Plymouth, just right. by, you know, like within a stone's throw from the old Mayflower. And uh, you know, th- there's evacuation signs on the Cape, how to get away if there's a problem. They have the nuclear uh, pool there where they keep the waste on the site, just like Fukushima, right on the coast. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's just uh, I mean, I'm appalled by this. How can – I mean, let, let's talk a little bit about the politics of this. Nuclear power does not make money for anyone. It's heavily subsidized by the government, um, at least in this country. I think maybe in France it might be profitable because the country is over 90 percent nuclear power. But um, – well, you know, this isn't like a money thing. I mean, they're not making money from it. What, what's, who are the people that are promoting this? As you point out, President Obama is very pro-nuclear. He's put online the first nuclear plant since, I think, uh, Seabrook in New Hampshire that's being built, the southern nuclear plants in Georgia. Well, who's behind it? What, why are they pushing this, given the fact that it, scientifically it is creating such problems and that not to mention the fact that uh, – they have no idea what to do with the nuclear waste, which is even more dangerous than the uh, the actual uh, material that that is presently in use. Yeah, it's inexcusable but understandable. One of the things that happens is that when an industry gets um, well established and prosperous and um, interconnected politically, it becomes very difficult to. Uh, uh, to control it, you, um, the, po- the political process tends to accommodate it, leading to a problem that I call the regulatory industrial complex. Uh, there's a lot of money involved. It's, it's these these um, projects are really not sustaining technologically long term, and they're not profitable. Uh, increasingly, in the short term, in 2010, there was a study that uh, was done in North Carolina that established what is now being called the historic crossover, the point at which uh, in North Carolina and increasingly around the world, nuclear power is becoming more expensive than uh, solar energy. Right. Um, so that well, argument my, my is My point is that it's not, it's not profitable. I mean, they're, they're not, there's never been a nuclear plant, or correct me if I'm wrong, that actually has turned to profit. They're all subsidized. They're subsidized from the moment they're built, <clears throat> they're subsidized when they operate, and they're subsidized when they shut down. It's not. This is taxpayer money, basically paying for these things. It's not a viable business if it was left on its own. 
One can't go into this business. It's all taxpayer subsidized, isn't yeah, it? And it? If you look at the roots of it, that's absolutely true. It's a totally subsidized industry. Uh, in, in the beginning, though, the reason that this, this whole thing got kicked off is uh, because it was a spinoff of the uh, military-industrial complex. The, uh, right. Uh, the AEC needed to uh, uh, provide and make sure that there was uh, plutonium available for nuclear weapons, which were growing, and uh, there was no way that this could be produced with the uh, infrastructure that exists within the, uh, the defense industry. So uh, an executive with Monsanto actually came up with the idea of a, quote, dual-purpose uh, reactor that would produce uh, electricity and, and plutonium. And there's um, a study from Commonwealth Edison when it was considering uh, whether to go this route in 1952, and they concluded, in our judgment, these plants would be justified from an economic standpoint only if a substantial value were assigned to the plutonium produced. Uh, that's what made it feasible. The uh, utilities got uranium fuel from the government. In exchange, they handed the government the uh, waste product plutonium, which was then shipped to Rocky Flats and turned into uh, buttons for nuclear weapons. Oh, so what you're saying, then, is the nuclear plants in this country are being used to produce not just electricity, but plutonium for nuclear weapons. Well, actually, it's gone beyond that now. It's gone full circle. With the uh, START Treaty, we are now re uh, recycling the um, nuclear warheads of uh, ru dismantled Russian missiles and using this uh, material in some U.S. reactors. And so then the, we're shipping uh, the, nuclear material from Russia to the United States? We were yeah, we're, we're taking the... Uh, nuclear uh, warhead material and it's being reprocessed into uh, a fissionable element that can be used in uh, nuclear reactors and it's also being used in it was being used in one of the four reactors that uh, had a problem in in Fukushima as well it's called MOX uh, fuel how do they transport this stuff oh god you wouldn't want to imagine uh oh, it, it goes, god. i mean it goes really by, yeah it goes by ship it's uh reprocessed uh, fuel is sent around the world by ship uh, and God forbid that a Somali pirate should intercept one of yeah, these. Yeah, I mean, pirates. has there ever been an accident that um, we know of? Uh, well, as far as uh, by sea, I'm not aware of uh, any accidents. And how do people handle it? I mean, how do you, it's not the kind of stuff you could just put in a suitcase. No, um, there there have been accidents shipping by by uh, land, by road. In the United States, we've had uh, um, three or four. Uh, significant uh, turnovers. Um, in most cases, there's no uh, exposure, they tell us, to uh, uh, to the residents. But in one case, uh, there was uh, there was uh, a spill on the road that was detectable. And now I want to talk. This is because we don't. I want to bring. I'm going to bring you back, Gar. And I apologize for the shortened interview today. But you know, because as I read this book, I want to develop this further, and also I want to start sending this out to people as a podcast because I think this is very important information. Your book is very important, in my opinion, Nuclear Roulette, The Truth About the Most Dangerous Energy Source on Earth. Um, I just want to ask you a little bit about the science of this. Uh, the nuclear reaction is something that obviously is man-made. It was something that was developed by scientists inside the United States during World War II, uh, mainly because they wanted to beat the Nazis, who were also trying to develop nuclear power. And, um, you, you know, I understand that, and I understand that it was – you know, you could argue that, that the nuclear uh, bomb over Japan ended that war. I don't believe that. I don't think, I don't think, I think it could have been ended 
uh, through negotiation, in my personal opinion. At the same time, of course, I interviewed once General Charles Sweeney, who actually dropped the bomb in Nagasaki, and he insists that uh, this was justified and it saved American and Japanese lives. We could talk about the politics. That's a separate matter. But, the, but from a science standpoint, you know, what – I mean, they're creating this stuff. This plutonium is created through the fusion, which is man-made, and they don't know what to do with it. It's so powerful that – and it's so destructive to uh, to human life and to the planet that uh, – and yet they're creating more and more of it every year around the world, obviously not just in this country, but in some very dangerous countries like Iran. Um, can this material – I mean, let's just say in a, in a perfect scenario, which is that uh, – the governments of the world agree no, to no longer produce nuclear weapons or nuclear material at all, and we, we're able to shut down this material because of its danger. What the hell do they do with the with the plutonium? I mean, how can you get rid of this stuff? Well, you can't. You have to isolate it, and uh, there's no proven way of doing that. The, the best thing that we've got going is a deep cavern in uh, Finland, Right. that uh, will uh, eventually be able to secure just Finland's uh, nuclear wastes for What about the Yucca Mountain facility in, in, um, in Nevada? Um, I, I interviewed an author a while ago who actually was pro-nuclear, uh, who told me that uh, not only could it be stored there uh, in, in this very deep crevice, but also he talked about putting it in these barrels with, with extra heavy kind of uh, concrete backing and, and, and dropping them into very, very deep ravines in the ocean and that they could just be down there forever. They would be totally harmless and they would just be like pellets at the bottom of the ocean. I mean, is there a way that, I mean, scientifically this stuff can be um, isolated and, and quarantined properly in such a way that it's no longer, um, you know, a factor? It would be the largest engineering challenge ever attempted in the history of human uh, innovation. Right. Uh, this idea of uh, just dropping stuff and, and, you know, putting it in a hole or into the ocean, uh, it's, um, it's, it's not proven. Uh, here sure. in uh, San Francisco, we have a, a bunch of these drums that were dumped off uh, shore near the Farallon Islands. That was you know, the accepted way of dealing with the problem. You dump it in the ocean, no problem. Right, All back the, in the, the day, drums yeah. are now rusting through. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're proposing building a storage site that will last longer than any human uh, artifact has ever lasted. The pyramids uh, didn't last as long as we would need to uh, secure this material. So, you know, so basically what we're looking at, we're up, you know what, creek. I mean, we've got this stuff sitting around. It's in countries around the world. You've got countries that are now trying to vie for developing nuclear plants, countries such as Algeria, uh, you know, countries like Brazil. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, these are, uh, you know, in the case of Algeria, very unstable countries. Mm-hmm. And um, and they're, they're basically running plutonium and they're, they're trading the stuff. I mean, we had the, the Pakistani bomb, of course, in the 1990s due to espionage by this guy Khan who right. stole the stole the information from from the from the Netherlands and from Germany um you know it just looks really really hopeless in terms of trying to contain um this stuff uh you know it's just uh, 
you know, you, you, it, I don't I don't think it's a matter of business either, because as we've said, it's not a profitable business. This is governments, governments having some kind of an interest in developing this material, whether it because they think they're going to have a military edge or because they think that they're going to get uh, cheap power. I mean, I, I don't understand it. I mean, yeah, politically me speaking, how little, can we stop this? Yeah, let me throw in a little element of hope here. Uh, after five years, the, uh, this, these hot fuel assembly rods that are stored in the pools, the cooling pools, they can be moved into what's called dry cast storage. That's on land. It's a lot more secure, mm-hmm. uh, but it's got to be outside the range of a uh, uh, rocket-propelled grenade because it could be a terrorist target. Mm-hmm. Uh, but these are more secure in the long term, and uh, that's that's one thing that we'll have to deal with uh, instead of just letting the fuel pools fill up more and more with each passing year and each accumulated ton. We've got to create these new um, highly secure on-land dry cast storage, storage facilities. Right. Well, I mean, that's that's at least one, one ray of hope. Um, you know, I hope to um, have you back soon, Gar, and, uh, and discuss this further as I read this book. It is very upsetting. Um, well, we but should point very out important. The, the last third of the book is about solutions. Good. All right. We well, I'm looking forward to getting with, to with that. All this bad news. Yeah, I'm in, I'm in the middle of the bad news part. So, <laughs> anyway, Gar Smith, I want to thank you very much for joining me this afternoon. Thank you very much, Chuck. Okay, the book is Nuclear Roulette: The Truth About the Most Dangerous Energy Source on Earth. We shall be back after these messages. Please stay tuned. Monday through Friday, noon to 2 p.m. I'd like to welcome aboard our affiliate stations, uh, those being Cyber Station USA Radio Network, our host station, WWPRAM in Tampa Bay, Florida, KSKQFM in Ashland, Oregon. And, of course, if you go to the Cyber Station website, you could hook on to Stitches, which is our online app. It's free, and you could download this program on your Android or on your cell phone anywhere in the world and also check out Cyber Station's other excellent programs. Okay, welcome to the uh, we're welcoming to the program Kyle Olson. He's a columnist for townhall.com. Uh Kyle writes about the phenomena of public unions. Kyle, thanks for joining me this afternoon. Hi, thanks for having me. Kyle, it seems to me that public unions are a bit of a um a contradiction in terms. It's kind of a double jeopardy for the taxpayers. Because the uh, members of these unions, and these are not diff- these are not what we would call sweatshop jobs here. These are good public servant jobs. They uh, they they thrive obviously on taxpayer money, and yet they're allowed to get involved in politics, which means that they're going to support the uh, the party and the candidates and the causes 
that enhance taxpayer money, which is, of course, where their bread is buttered. And I'm not criticizing public servants here. I'm simply pointing out that that is their interest, which means that the Democratic Party receives probably you know, within the range of 90 to 95 percent of their financing from public unions and private unions, but in this case we're talking public, and that that is money that is taxpayer money. So we have a double jeopardy situation here, and it's one that is very corrupting, is it not? Right. It's a very corrupt process because basically what happens is um, you just take a school board, for example, which is what we primarily what we track, but you've got a, a local union that will uh, find a retired teacher or uh, a spouse of a teacher um, or, or, or of a school employee, something like that. They will recruit them to run. They will give them a campaign contribution. They'll, you know, get out and go door to door and that sort of thing. And then that, that individual is elected to the school board. And then lo and behold, who is that union negotiating with? The person that they just elected. And so it's it's the unions have... Uh, Public sector unions have have realized that it's very easy to control um, their destiny, essentially, by being involved in politics. And so uh, we're seeing that across the country, and we're seeing different states pay for that. I mean, Florida, uh, excuse me, uh, California, uh, with their budget problems and their pension problems and all of that, the unions have been running the show there politically for years, and uh, we're seeing how that that uh, state operates. And so it's a real uh, problem within our political system of unions uh, being involved in politics and influencing uh, who is going to be making their decisions. So we have, the phenomenon is national. It's primarily a local problem, cities and towns, and also states with these unions are choking the the public. What they do is, uh, in in a sense, they're there not to serve the public. They're serving themselves, and they get politicians who serve the government rather than the public and and I can speak to this in that I, I did a show for a while in the city of Fitchburg and I was there during an election and I discovered that Fitchburg, which is a, a relatively poor city, it's a lower middle class city, they had they had no less than thirteen public unions and that these unions were choking that city government. I mean there was nothing very virtually nothing left of the private sector. Businesses had tacked up and left because of the high tax rates and the and the regulations and uh, and yet there was nothing that could be done because all of the union members lived in the city. Their families lived in the city. They had a self-interest in in voting for and supporting candidates who would further their interests. And they expected right. to have contracts. These were, the, you know, putting putting aside the issue of collective bargaining, they had contracts which were secretive and which had all of these benefits that were far exceeding like benefits of people who were. Had jobs in the private sector, and uh, you know even in Boston right now we have a problem with the uh, the policemen's union. They're refusing to to agree to something as simple as random drug testing. We just had an incident where policemen were were on uncontrolled substances and there was a disaster. Uh, and we're talking also about some of the transportation unions like the the uh, MBTA and the subway system and the bus union. They're refusing to have random drug testing unless they get more pension money and unless they get more of health benefits. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, in other words, w- what you have here is that the people of this, this country, the people, the citizens, and their elected officials no longer have control of their own government. The government is controlled by these combines, these unions of public employees paid by us, and they decide 
how things go, happen. I mean, they, they they control how they are regulated, and they continue in that that position no matter who you elect to office. That's right. So what they've done is they have very successfully made um, the issues of the day about themselves, about what is their pension going to be, how much is our raise going to be, how much um, are you going to make us pay for a, a copay for our, our health care plan, and that sort of thing. Right. And they've they've successfully made school issues about adults, um, where you know, I mean, you would think, if you have a school system that is not performing as it should, you would think that um, the adults in the system, whether it's the teachers or the administrators or the school board members, would be saying, "Look, at we have got to be doing what's in the in the best interest of children." Instead. Um, when you have politicians try and bring up, you know, uh, an evaluation system or having school employees pay 3% of their health care plan or their retirement or doing a, a 401k-style plan instead of a, 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 a pension plan, I mean, it's just like, you know, people just go out of their minds. Yeah, and, uh, and, so, and so what's happening is they have very successfully made uh, government schools uh, almost like a public works program instead of a place of learning for children. Right. I mean, here, in, for example, in Quincy, which is the hometown of Cyber Station USA, our main radio station here, there was a, uh, a threat by the union to uh, to go on strike two or three weeks before the end of the school year because the mayor wanted them to accept a $10 copay instead of a $5 copay, mm-hmm. a perfectly reasonable request for a city that is going bankrupt. And uh, and they refused to back down, and sure enough, they shut down the schools, and yep. uh, the, the students in Quincy lost ha- lost uh, the rest of their their year. But the problem that emerged out of this was that the unions and their friends and their family members and other public unions got together, and and it turns out that they made up probably pretty close to half of the population of, of the city of Quincy, and they put up signs on their lawns, you know. Don't hurt the children, they're telling us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Who's hurting the children? Them. I mean, they, right. they were like accusing the rest of us. You know, be, we're not on the side of children, they, they, they tell us. And, right. and they And the city buckled under after, you know, by the next year. So, you know, the city continues to go broke over this, and uh, they, they have this enormous power. Now, I want to ask you, and my guest is Kyle Olson. He's a columnist with uh, townhall.com. I mean, the, the argument that they make is that um, what happens if, for example, you have a teacher or you have a fireman or you have a, a, a cop or someone and they were not public unions and they had a legitimate grievance? In other words, that they had a situation where they were being unfairly treated or they were being passed over unfairly or whatnot. I mean, to me, it seems like that those things can be addressed without a union. Right. Um, there are school boards. There are town councils. There are county level, um, you know, there are county level uh, government boards that you can appeal to. You can appeal to the state, to the attorney general, to the president of the United States. I mean, there's there's all sorts of levels of appeal that uh, public employees would have um, access to. Uh, but to me, what it comes down to is you've got unions that. They have uh, basically they they have um, employees paying dues that are essentially trapped because um, if you live in a state that is not right to work, um, you really have no no option about whether or not to pay that union uh, a portion right. of your money for them to do their their uh, political work and their bargaining and, and uh, you know and their 
all of that sort of business. And so it's, it's unfortunate to me um, to have the unions across the country time and time again do these sorts of stunts in order to gain uh, leverage and gain power to try and get something that they want. And, you know, most people I know, they would love to have a $10 copay. Uh, I know personally I, that I would welcome that. Um, that would sure. be a decrease for me and That's for right. a lot of people in the private sector. Um, but, you know, that that is where the unions have been for years. Um, they have had it so great for years. But the, the fact of the matter is um, they're in – we as taxpayers and states and, and local government are in a financial situation now where uh, the course that we're on is not sustainable. And uh, and so these sorts of, of costs need to be reined in. The government sector needs to be brought in line with the private sector. And so that's the that's the rub right now, and that's the fight that we're seeing play out. That's right. And the unions, of course, the Democratic Party is completely beholden to public unions because that's the only union element in this country that is growing. Uh, I'm not against private unions. I think it's their right to do it. But when it comes to the public, these are uh, these are tax-funded organizations. Now, in the case of the teachers' union, it's more than just money. Uh, they, uh, the National Education Association, for example, which was able to get the Department of Education created in the 1970s as a payback by Jimmy Carter to the fact that they helped elect him. They they have besides their own agenda, the uh, department the the National Education Association has their annual <clears throat> convention where they come up with endorsing various educational modalities, educational agendas. It's not just a matter of money. They talk they they have you know agendas they want to impress upon the. Uh, the various committee school regions that they, they where they have uh, representatives, and that agenda is very left wing. Now, of course, it's their right if they want to advocate that, but they have inside power to enforce this, and uh, they they basically tell their various members who attend their convention that you are to introduce these ideas in the context of the situation of your district. In other words, if it's more conservative, you might have to maybe be a little bit more laid back, a little bit more stealthy about it. But these are our issues, and they publish those. And, you know, it's things like radical uh, teachings within sex education, social studies, and, and other other areas of learning, um, and, and a style of teaching that gets away from cognitive thinking and more toward behaviorism and uh, and whatnot. And, and that this is, this is part of this uh, public union phenomena because the NEA is the national union. It's one of the richest unions in the world. Um, what this means, whether you agree with their politics or not, is that you as parents who send your children to uh, the public schools of your city and town, you have lost control over the type of teaching that goes on in the school. Uh, that, that has been transferred to the, this public sector organization, and it has been nationalized and even internationalized. Um, and that that, regardless of where you may come on down on any of these issues, that should be troubling because those are decisions that should be made by the parents and their elected representatives in their city and town, that being the school board. Mm -hmm. That's right. Um, so what you've got is you've got a, a National Education Association and an American Federation of Teachers, which is the smaller of the two national unions, right. have a very uh, uh, liberal, progressive um, 
social agenda. And so it's not just about how can we get better raises and, and better health benefits and retirement benefits for our employees, but you've got activists running the union who want to fundamentally change America um, and not in a, in a pro-freedom, <laughs> limited government That's sort right. of way. That's right. And so, um, so they, they go to the conventions, they endorse candidates, they endorse uh, policy positions, um, those sorts of things. And then those are brought back to the classroom. Um, we last week we talked about um, and covered a video that the the, the um, California Teachers Union put out about tax the rich, and that it was narrated by Ed Asner, and you know just very um, you know demonizing the rich, demonizing success, or the so-called rich, demonizing success, um, literally having a a quote-unquote, rich person urinating on the people down below him, the ordinary people and calling that trickle-down economics, mm-hmm. um, making statements like the, uh, the, the money, the, the bailouts and the stimulus um, that was, that, you know, the money printed by the government went to the rich people, not to the ordinary people, even though, you know, the New York Times reported uh, very well on the, the uh, a breakdown of where the stimulus money went, to, you know, for food assistance, for Pell Grants, for um, schools, uh, all sorts of, you know, billions and billions, hundreds sure. of billions of dollars uh, went to the ordinary people. Um, but that doesn't fit the agenda of the, the California Teachers Union. And so they created this video, um, you know, Tax the Rich, which is a, a socialist, you know, kind of mantra. Right. And, um, and that, is, that is the mindset of big labor, um, not not necessarily rank and file teachers, at least a lot of the rank and file teachers, some of them no, for sure. It's the but that is that is that is the the leadership, that is the activists and those are the people that are driving the positions of the union. And so that is the direction that they're going. I mean, I live in Michigan and I'll I'm going to be at the, the state capitol tomorrow when uh right to work is passed. Right. And uh, there's there's an individual Lisa Fithian who is a, a self described anarchist who was in um, in Detroit at a UAW hall uh, this past weekend teaching people how to protest. And tomorrow it, it's not going to be pretty, uh, oh. but that, that is the agenda of big labor. They want confrontation. Um, they want to make it very difficult for a, a state or a local government to do any sort of you know meager reform. Um, and so that's what parents ultimately are up against, is this establishment that wants to protect the monopoly, they want to protect the government-run, government-financed um, school system, and that it, it's it's a very tough fight for parents, but they need to continue to fight it. Right. I mean, and again, what we're talking about here, whether you're on the left or the right, we're talking about an official agenda that is very much on the left, and it is a part of the teachers' unions nationally, and that that is not the role of our teachers. That is not the role of our school department. If you want to have a left-wing school department, fine. Elect left-wing, uh, you know, city, you know, school board members and, and put in the left. But you, do you want this to be run nationally against the will of the people? I mean, this is, you know, you, you talk about a film with Ed Asner. They're not showing any films with Milton Friedman, you know, right. or William F. Buckley. I mean, they, they, Milton Friedman did a fantastic TV series about capitalism, which they're not going to show. So it's very one-sided. That is, and and what is troubling about it is the fact that it is one-sided and part of the government. These are public unions. This is not uh, a, a free choice here. 
this is, uh, you know, our educators are, are implementing these things, and they're telling parents basically to stay outside the door. Now, you say that, that Michigan's about to pass a right-to-work law, which would be a fantastic development. Uh, I predicted well over a year ago when I was on the air with a liberal co-host that uh, 2012 would be the year in which we would start to see um, public union power challenged around the country, both by liberals and conservatives, and because it's breaking the back of the country, because it has an agenda, and because uh, they, they shouldn't be involved in politics. And then we saw what happened in Wisconsin. Governor Scott Walker took on the public sector unions in that state. Uh, the attack against him was one of the most vicious, ugly things that I've seen come down the pike in, in American politics in many decades. It was just really, really nasty. I mean, people pouring in from around the country, throwing garbage at him and his children as they tried to go to school, and just uh, the ugliest spectacle you can imagine. And yet he was able to beat off an attempt to have him overthrown, basically, with, uh, with a bigger margin of victory than he had before. But what was not reported in the Scott Walker story in Wisconsin was that once it became voluntary for uh, people to be in a public union, something like 40% of public employees dropped out of their unions. And when they did so, they actually received a raise because they didn't have to pay the dues. And that cities and towns in Wisconsin that were forced to buy the union-backed health insurance for their employees at, at an at exorbitant price, you want to talk about corruption, they, they basically dropped those plans under Walker's rules and uh, saved millions of dollars by buying cheaper health insurance, and that forced the union company to lower their rates. So, right. you know, when you have a, a private sector answer to these things, you know, it, it, it works quite well. And, and I think that liberal governors around the country and legislators were hoping that Scott Walker was successful because they're dealing with some of the same situations, but they can't say so publicly. Uh, you know, even here in Boston, Mayor Menino is one of the most liberal Democrats around, but he's in, in, in has been fighting the public unions in this city for years. And the Massachusetts state legislature, which is about as you, you'd have to go to Pyongyang to find a further left wing, you know, legislature, they came out with an, an almost unanimous vote last year to get rid of collective bargaining for public unions. So and that's that's. That will, uh, sorry to interrupt, but that's right. I mean, that is the sort of thing that needs to be reported more. You know, this is not the um, the conservative Republican, you know, war on working families, but this is this is elected officials of both parties saying we this is on this is an unsustainable course and we can't continue down this road um, because we're creating these pension plans and health care plans that are simply we can't afford. And somebody is going to have to pay the bill at some point. And um, and so you're right. With Scott Walker, uh, I mean, he stood up and he withstood everything that was thrown at him. Uh, we did a piece called Anarchy 101 uh, where we looked at, you know, uh, who was behind the recalls, who was behind the protests. Very radical people. And it wasn't Democrats. I mean, it was – I mean, Democrats were involved, certainly – but it was p people to the left of Democrats, I mean, radical oh, yeah. people, communists, anarchists, socialists, very radical people um, who just want to create anarchy and chaos in order to get their way. And, um, and so it's just that's the sort of thing that we need to continue to hammer on. 
is that um, you know this is this is really a, a nonpartisan fight of um, trying to rein in spending um, and and that sort of thing. Right, and uh, you know I you know I have no problem. And by the way, what happened with Scott Walker? I know that after he was um, he beat off the um, the recall attempt. Wasn't there a, a liberal judge who stepped in and basically said? you have to give these benefits to the public unions? Yes. Basically what happened was um, in Dane County, which is the one of the most liberal counties in the country, it's where Madison is, yeah. uh, basically overturned Act 10. And so at this point it, it's overturned, but at some point it's going to make its way to the Supreme Court um, where if it doesn't if it doesn't get reinstated by you know, on appeal, um, it probably eventually will at the Supreme Court level. Um, but that's you know that's the other thing that the unions will do is if they can't get their way legislatively, they will try and go to the courts to get uh, that sort of legislation stopped. And we're seeing that in Michigan as well, um, because of the, the rules in Michigan in terms of the capital and how many people can be in there and when it closes and all that sort of thing um, is is wildly different from Wisconsin. So you would never see in Michigan you would never see people camping in the capital and you know all of that stuff that was going on. Um, but because it got to be a dangerous situation where people were trying to, you know, race past the police on physically onto the Senate floor as this was being debated, um, they eventually closed the Capitol. And the unions filed suit saying that the, the legislature viled the, uh, violated the Open Meetings Act because they closed the Capitol. Um, and so that's the sort of stunt that they try and pull in order to get their way. Right. Now, uh Okay, my guest is Kyle Olson. He's a, a columnist with uh, townhall.com. Kyle, would it be radical of me to suggest that we should insist that um, public unions no longer exist, that uh, that public sector employees certainly can have associations mm-hmm. for um, you know social reasons, for whatnot, but that they should not have collective bargaining rights, they should not be collectively contributing to political campaigns, Certainly, they can as individuals, but uh, that that to do so is a conflict of interest. It, it puts the the uh, taxpayer in double jeopardy. I mean, would this be something that should be uh, a cause for perhaps Republicans, perhaps uh, conservatives? Well, I think it certainly it certainly should be looked at. I mean, because when you've got you know states that are their hands are tied. States and localities are their hands are tied because of a collective bargaining agreement. Um, when you have a, a union who has the ability to go out and elect politicians, who then are going to turn around and, and look out for their interests, um, that that's a fundamentally corrupt system, and um, and it needs to be reformed. I mean, one example is uh, la- I think it was last week or maybe two weeks ago we looked at the Buffalo, New York. Um, schools and the way that they're spending tax dollars. And we reported on the fact that last school year they spent $2.7 million on elective cosmetic surgeries for teachers. Now, this is a district that spent uh, is, is $49 million in deficit. Uh, they have a 54% graduation rate, uh, all sorts of, you know, just outrageous statistics. And so when we when we, you know, we're we're talking about this and covering it, Fox picked it up and others picked it up, and uh, the the one of the board members was on Megyn Kelly's show on Fox News, and she said, you know, why are you continuing to have this when you've got you know this huge deficit and you know just people in the private sector don't get this and 
And he said, well, the union told us that they would they would get rid of it in the next contract. And it, just his attitude was like, you know, he, they were basically just looking for permission uh, from the union. And I thought to myself, I mean, who's in charge? Are you in charge, right. or is the union in charge? And uh, but and so that's that's the attitude that has to be broken. Um, otherwise, nothing is going to change. Right, and, and that's where you have this phenomena of double jeopardy, where these public unions have increased their power to such a degree that they control our elected officials, and that our elected officials are not representing us anymore. They're actually representing in the broad sense, themselves, because the unions are part of the government. So the government basically is be, is becoming this uh, this public sector engine, this this kind of self self aggrandizing and, and actualizing engine of power, and it's all funded by you and I, the taxpayer, uh, the the private sector worker. And, uh, and it's not, again, just a matter of money either. It's also an issue of um, their having an agenda, especially when it comes to, to our children, when it comes to things like um, the ability of a mayor, for example, in Boston to tell a, um, a, a bus union that they need to take drug testing after there was a terrible accident, and they can't do it because uh, the union won't, won't let them. I mean, this is uh, – you know, we, we elect people to uh, be able to function as executives and as legislators. And uh, a lot of the actual governing power is being shifted from elected representatives to these public sector unions, which are unelected government, uh, you know, servants, basically. Right. So then what people like that, like the mayor, needs to do is not just throw up his hands and say, you know, well, I, I can't do this because of a collective bargaining agreement. Um, but actually, you know, force force the issue and and force the legislature to do something about it. Um, I mean, it's so easy. Again, back to Buffalo, it's so easy for for that individual to say, to, for that board member to say, well, they told us that they would get rid of it when we have a new contract. They've been negotiating for seven years. They've been there. Right. The, the union, uh, the the contract has been expired for seven years, and they've been negotiating for seven years spending who knows how much on hired negotiators and and all uh, and taxpayer so, funded by the way that's right and so at some point you have to just say you know what we're not doing this anymore we're going to impose a contract do what you will and uh, and 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 change the situation change the dynamics um, but unfortunately some politicians they they will talk a good game but then they don't actually do anything to try and to try and change the situation. Right, and some of them are owned by the unions, sure. as we talked about earlier. Uh, Kyle Olson, where can people read your excellent columns? Um, you can go to eagnews.org, which is our main website, um, or you can uh, see my work at townhall.com. And also, if you're in Lansing tomorrow, check out the uh, the rally for um, right to right to work. Yes, that's right. I will be there. Excellent. Thanks a lot for joining me, Kyle. Thank you. Okay. We'll be back after these messages. You're listening to Chuck Moore Speaks. Please stay tuned.
we are back. You're listening to Chuck Morse Speaks. This is your host, Chuck Morse. I want to thank uh, Gar Smith for joining me in the first segment. Uh, Gar is the author of Nuclear Roulette. And uh, and Kyle Olson, who is uh, a columnist with uh, townhall.com, we're talking about uh, both the dangers of nuclear power in this world and also of um, the uh, dangers, in my opinion, of... uh, uh, and, and inequities and 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 uh, corruption and injustice of public sector unions, um, and and I do would argue that it is very corrupt. Um, let's see, we've got um, looking at the Drudge Report. Jamie Foxx jokes about killing all the white people in his new movie. Yeah, isn't he the one that said, "Our Lord and Savior, Barack Obama." Uh, Two weeks ago, Oscar-winning actor Jamie Foxx made national headlines when he called President Obama our Lord and Savior. That's right. While hosting NBC Saturday Night Live this weekend, Foxx joked about how, in his new film, Django Unchained, I kill all the white people in the movie. How great is that? Then uh, Jamie Foxx, my name is Jamie Foxx. Give it up, give it up, New York City, Saturday Night Live. Come on, make some noise, man. New York City, New York City, Brooklyn, Staten Island, Queens. Oh, boy. And then he gets into this whole dialogue. Um, but uh, but what he does apparently in the movie or what he said on Saturday Night Live is that uh, it was a wonderful thing that in this movie he kills all the white people. I don't know. I mean, I, I have to tell you that, um, I, you know, by the way, I, I am not white myself, but um, – I, I'm offended by by this kind of racist comment that any ethnic group or racial group would be that that one would glorify in the idea of killing them all, and um, and of course the 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 conditioned audience at Saturday Night Live oh they oh yay bravo whoopee you know they they all cheered and um, and thought it was just the coolest thing that they'd ever heard. Why don't we um, why don't we listen in a little bit on. Uh, on Jamie Foxx on Saturday Night Live. Here. Check it out. 
So there you have it. That's uh, Jamie Foxx on Saturday Night Live. I mean, look, I mean, the only, besides the race-oriented uh, speech, which I think is okay, the uh, the comment that, that seems to be rankling people is that uh, he's glorifying the fact that the character in the movie kills all the white people. And I just point out, I mean, what what if one said, you know, gee, I'm in the movie and I kill all the Jewish people? Or I kill all the Irish people, or I kill all the uh, Chinese people. I mean, it's a it, it's a nasty remark, and it was, but it was greeted by cheers and whoops. Um, you know, I understand that it was in the context of slavery times. So yes, I mean, I suppose that um, I would have no problem, for example, as a Jew, saying seeing a movie about Nazis and saying that I went out and I killed all the Nazis. You know, that that to me would be fine. Uh, you know, these are people who are involved with uh, killing you, and you're, you're doing it in self-defense. But um, it, it had a tone to it of just, uh, isn't it cool that, um, how black is that, that I'm killing all the white people in the movie? It's, uh, you know, I don't know. It's, uh, it's, it's uh, I would contend, a little bit beyond the pale uh, in terms of um, of what, uh, you know, of, 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 of comments that... Um, by conventional definitions, would be considered as racist. Um, let's see. Google revenue is sheltered in no-tax Bermuda. <laughs> Soar to $10 billion. Looks like somebody has a little offshore bank account. You know, I can tell you with the, um, the upcoming so-called fiscal cliff, which I think Obama wants the country to go over on so he can raise taxes on everybody, um, you have big liberal businesses sheltering their money now, you know, getting uh, getting their tax uh, deductions in or getting their taxes filed 
before the end of the year so that they can uh, get a hedge against what's going to be the largest tax increase in American history. And uh, we talked about this uh, during the uh, campaign um, before Barack Obama's reelection that uh, there's going to be unprecedented tax increases in this country across the board. Um, and that's that's pretty much what looks like that looks like what's coming down. Uh, you know, to raise taxes on just the successful, first of all, it's not enough money to make any difference. Secondly, the very rich aren't going to pay those taxes anyway. They're going to put the, they're going to do like Google has done, put the money in Bermuda so that they don't have to pay it, which means that the tax is going to be paid by the middle class. And thirdly, should we trust President Obama and the Democrats to uh, actually use that increase, which is very minuscule, by the way, in a manner that would reduce the federal deficit? Or are they going to increase spending? The answer is obvious. They're going to increase spending. So uh, I think that Congress needs to hold strong and not agree to any tax increases at this time. The government has more than enough money to function. They don't need more taxes. They have to cut spending. They will not do that. Obama has only done it in situations where he's absolutely had to do it in the past four years because if he didn't, there would have been bounced checks. They have to do more than that. They have to get a grip on this huge, massive public growth. I mean, this is a lot of what we talked about with my first two guests. I mean, the first guest talked about nuclear power, which is completely subsidized by the government. Tens of billions of dollars pouring into the development of nuclear power, the new plant in in, in uh, Georgia, and and all existing plants. That should be cut back. I think, frankly, that nuclear power should be a thing of the past. We should move away from nuclear power in this country. We should not be opening new nuclear plants. We should be phasing out existing nuclear plants. We should be containing the nuclear material that we've already created and um, and moving away from nuclear. It's not. It, it only makes up a small fraction of our of our energy needs. And it can be replaced by other energy sources, not just conventional sources either, such as gas and oil and coal, which we have abundance of, but also, uh, you know, wind and solar and um, and uh, biodegradables and, and um, renewables and, and, and tapping into the currents and other things that are proven to, to produce energy without this really, really nasty and dangerous material that is seeping into our, our air and our water and our land and uh, contaminating this planet and possibly, you know, seriously affecting the future of the human race. Uh, so to put it bluntly, we could cut back on federal spending by not funding any more of these nuclear plants and by reducing the funding on, on present ones to the point where they de are decommissioned and um, and of course our second guest, that being uh, Kyle Olson, we talked about the expense of public sector unions. That is a, a government expense. That is why one of the big reasons why we have this debt. What, I mean, why do we need a Department of Education? Why do we need to give who knows how much money to these so-called think tanks and these these educrats? Have they done anything whatsoever to improve the education of a single American child? 
I mean, the Department of Education was created in 1978. Is education in this country better today because of it? I don't think there's any evidence to suggest that it is. I don't think that they've had any positive effect on American education. American education should be handled by Americans locally in their own cities and towns. You know, this uh, this big government idea that somehow local people can't be trusted to to conduct their own, uh, to determine their own mode of educating their own children in their own communities um, is, is one that is typically left. The idea that people aren't smart enough, aren't able enough to do these things on their own and that they need to have the big overarching government with their liberal administrators deciding these things. You know, and, and unfortunately, a lot of Americans have gotten used to this as, as being a true idea. They've been conditioned to believe this, that somebody else knows more than they do about how to educate their children, and they don't. You know, we could save tens of billions, if not hundreds of billions of dollars, by defunding this public education bureaucracy and allowing public schools to be funded as they should be through local uh, property taxes and uh, where they can be controlled by and run by local uh, school elected school boards who then appoint a local elected uh, superintendents and um, and teachers and um, and decide on their own what what sort of education modality is best for their children not these big big you know national and even international bureaucracies i mean we talked a while back about how this un agenda is being implemented uh, on american education i mean it's uh, we don't need that that's not going to help any our young people uh, think properly and, and, and function properly as educated people. Anyway, my point is that we don't need, the government does not need any more money. They've got plenty of money uh, to function. We should hold the line and not agree to any tax increases. The Republicans should not cave in on this. You know, I understand that the Democrats are going to try to blame Republicans. Fine. I don't think that's going to work. And even if they do, it does. I don't care who get, who gets blamed. I mean, look, you know, if if they're going to raise taxes across the board under, in the Obama years, then that's going to be Obama's legacy ultimately. And, you know, it's it's going to be a disaster. The idea that that, that, that Republicans support tax increases on anybody is, is absurd. Anyway, let's take a look at the – couple of other things going on here. A uh, federal judge has found that North Carolina's Choose Life license plates are unconstitutional. How so? Let's see. This is where the left looks to judges to, uh, to make law. And I think the answer to that, and again, this is part of my new book, which hopefully will be coming out next year, that being um, Republican Party Fabian, a Fabian approach is that, that Republicans or conservatives or, or Americans interested in freedom should also bring up lawsuits uh, challenging uh, these, these decisions, and they should do so regularly, just like the ACLU does. You know, they need to bring up, you know, for example, here we have this story out of North Carolina. A liberal judge has found choose life plates unconstitutional. 
A federal judge has ruled it is unconstitutional for North Carolina to issue pro-life license plates unless the state offers similar plates supporting abortion. U.S. District Court Judge James C. Fox ruled on Friday that North Carolina cannot produce or distribute the Choose Life plate. Judge Fox concluded, the state's offering of a Choose Life license plate in the absence of a pro-choice plate constitutes viewpoint discrimination in violation of the First Amendment. I didn't know the First Amendment said that um, people didn't have a right to a viewpoint. <laughs> Are they saying that uh, this is a good one? He's saying that um, to for, for a government, for a state government, or a city government to express a viewpoint is discrimination, and there's such thing as quote viewpoint discrimination in the state constitution in North Carolina. Huh? And besides, why is this in a federal court anyway? Um, let's see, um, viewpoint discrimination in violation of the First Amendment. What does it have to do with the First Amendment? The First Amendment says freedom of speech. It doesn't say anything about viewpoint discrimination. Um, you know, I mean, if they're going to have that point of view, then they're going to have to throw out pretty much most of public education because it has a point of view. Okay, the Ameri there you go. The American Civil Liberties Union of North Carolina has filed a lawsuit in U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of North Carolina on behalf of North Carolinians seeking a specialty license plate that supports a woman's right to choose to reproductive freedom. Well, let them have that plate. I mean, I don't know. Maybe that's that's the solution. This is a great victory for the free speech rights of all North Carolinians, regardless of their point of view on reproductive freedom, so-called, said Chris Brock. I mean, again, I don't see where anyone's free speech is being violated. The only the only free speech being violated are people who would like to have a license plate that, that calls for pro-life. Now they can't get that. Uh, I guess that... Um, if if people who are pro-abortion want to have a license plate that that promotes that, they certainly can, I suppose. This is a great – all right. Brooks said that the government cannot create an avenue to express one side of a political issue while denying an equal opportunity to citizens with an opposing view. Judge Fox granted a preliminary injunction and temporarily blocked production of the Choose Life plate. During the 2011 legislative session, North Carolina Assembly passed House Bill 289, which authorized the use of Choose Life license plates. However, officials say the legislature refused to authorize a plate that supported the countervailing position in favor of reproductive freedom. All right, so maybe that's the problem there. They should probably have a bill that supports abortion, you know, I suppose. Uh, trust women, respect choice, the legislature rejected. All right, so maybe that's not quite what you think it was. I mean, I actually think that, um, that you could say that uh, they probably should have that as a plate as well. Let's see, government investigating markers on cell phone apps. Carbon taxes threaten Californians with double taxation. <laughs> what else is new? Obama turns to telemarketing for fiscal cliff win. Feds looking to sell FBI's J. Edgar Hoover headquarters. Big stocks sell off in the year-end finale. Wall Street expects worse bonuses since 08. Um, 
Spain threatens to be, to deport filmmaker over anti-Islam video. I guess they're nervous over there. Um, anyway, the um, I suppose the main story is the fiscal cliff, and that is whether or not um, you know we are, are we going to fight the great and glorious fight on the department of Obama on the part of Obama to raise taxes and to come up with this rather ingenious and tricky way to blame Republicans for raising taxes because they don't support tax increases for the the tax-paying successful. Should the very rich pay some more taxes in this atmosphere? You know, maybe, maybe should they back down on that and let a tax increase go in? What is that going to mean? Again, I, I would argue that, it, that I oppose it on three grounds. Firstly, it's not enough money to make any difference in terms of uh, addressing the federal deficit. It's maybe less than a trillion dollars when the federal deficit's going up several trillion a year. Secondly, it's money that is, there, there's no way to determine, I don't think even constitutionally, whether that money is going to go toward actually reducing the deficit or if it's going to be used as a um, kind of a way to leverage a bigger stimulus package in which Obama is going to borrow more money. And I think that the indications are that that's exactly what they're planning on doing. That's certainly what Nancy Pelosi has been talking about in the House. And um, whether or not they are going to do it, we, we should at least hear some statements from the Obama administration indicating that they're not going to do that that they are going to use the money to reduce the deficit. I think if they did that, then then there might be more willingness on the part of um, the Republicans to approve a tax increase. The, the fear is that the money is going to be used to just spend and to further increase the deficit by, by, by basically spreading it around, so to speak, and uh, creating another stimulus package. And I think that that's pretty much, in so many words, what the administration is talking about. You know, another stimulus package. So for that reason, I believe that the Republicans should not agree to any tax increases. And if the uh, if if the fiscal cliff happens, and there are huge tax increases at the first of the year, um, it's going to have a devastating effect on the economy. And I guess the question is, really, it really comes down to one of PR, one of public relations which is to say, will the Obama administration be able to blame the Republicans in Congress for the tax increases? And, uh, and that's something that I suppose remains to be seen. Uh, it, it'll have a lot to do with whether or not they have a better PR department, and uh, they probably do. You know, um, Let's see what else is going on. Um, this is um, an article, Socialist Senator... I believe they're probably talking about Bernie Sanders, says the GOP Senate undemocratic for resisting Obama. Yeah, that's, that is Bernie Sanders. I think he said it on the Bill Moyers show. I watched a little of that. Bernie Sanders didn't pull any punches in describing GOP senators and their obstructionism. In a time of dysfunctionality in the Senate and all kinds of absurdity, this probably takes the cake when you filibuster your own bill, the self-described Democratic Socialist lawmaker told MSNBC's Ed Schultz Friday evening, the American people want action, and it is undemocratic. It is un-American 
when a small minority can deny the majority from going forward. Huh, that's a good one. Sanders made the remarks after McConnell on Thursday called for a vote on legislation giving President Obama unlimited power to increase the nation's borrowing limit, the so-called debt ceiling. McConnell had hoped to demonstrate that Republicans and Democrats alike oppose what he described as a power grab by the president, but he was forced to object to a single majority vote after Democrats agreed to move forward. Democrats said it may have been the first time that the minority in the Senate blocked one of its own bills from moving forward. The Senate did not end up voting on the measure, which would have required 60 votes to move forward after McConnell objected. In other words, the, uh, McConnell wanted to show that uh, the administration has no support, even among Democrats, regarding um, an increase in the debt ceiling. All right, so tomorrow I want to again mention that if you happen to be a citizen of the great state of Michigan and you happen to be in anywhere near the vicinity of the state capital, that being Lansing, go on out and support Right to Work you know, there, there's a bill before the legislature to have Michigan become a right-to-work state, and that means that uh, unionism will not be binding any longer in Michigan. Um, this actually has proven, by the way, to be a, uh, a a situation in which union influence in, in, in states that are right-to-work doesn't decrease. It actually increases because the unions then have to compete to get members and uh, they, they actually improve their, their offerings to people to make them more desirable uh, to join. So I urge people to support this as a matter of freedom, as a matter of the right to choose, if you will. Michigan Madness. Thousands plan to lay siege on state capital on Tuesday over right to work. On Tuesday, unions, left-wing radicals, and their allies are planning to lay siege to Michigan state capital to protest the state lawmakers' move to give workers the right to work for unionized companies without being compelled to pay union fees or be fired. On a Facebook page dedicated to a day of action on Tuesday, as of Sunday night, over 2,500 activists have pledged to show up to protest. That number is expected to grow by Tuesday, which is tomorrow. In addition to unions voting even bigger protests, than last week, Occupy Michigan is also promoting the Day of Action. The Lansing Fire Department has posted a list of likely street closures. On Saturday, according to ABC News, more than 200 union activists attended a training for Tuesday. Occupy Elisa Thithian, training union activists for Michigan protests. Ah, here we go. This is what uh, Kyle was talking about. Yahoo News is reporting that far-left anarchist Lisa Fithian is training protesters in Michigan on the direct action techniques, quote, that preparation for upcoming right-to-work protests. Fithian, exposed in the film Occupy Unmasked, is the radical frequently employed by labor unions, such as the United Auto Workers. With Fithian involved, look for fireworks in the coming days, in the battle for Michigan to become a right-to-work state. More than 200 activists attending training Saturday 
in preparation for a protest at the Michigan Capitol, where lawmakers are putting the final touches on legislation that would allow workers to stop paying union dues. You know, you'd think that workers would be supportive of this. I'm getting into this, by the way, book um, with regard to why workers and union members, their interests actually are in, in contradiction to uh, to the bosses. Anyway, I want to thank everyone for joining me this afternoon. This is Chuck Morse. You're listening to Chuck Morse Speaks. Check out the blog site, which is, of course, uh, Chuck Morse Speaks, and you could uh, order my book there, which is uh, The Monkey Trial, uh, Evolutionary Politics, Traditional Age. Uh, it's $3.75. You can order it right online, or you can actually order a full hour on the air with me and um, and a podcast of the interview to discuss your business or service. That can also be ordered online. It's $100 one-time fee. Anyway, I want to thank everyone for listening this afternoon. Chuck Moore speaks. Have a good afternoon, everybody. <laughs>